The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Well, let me uh, well let me say to begin with, y'all see this see this jacket right here? Y'all see it? You see that napkin? A little napkin and the tie. They all go together. I got them for y'all, but I ain't wearing this one for y'all. Okay, so that's the last time you've seen that. But I got a little fancy napkin, and and I I shouldn't throw away the tribute to Latin American missions. Austin's got me sporting right here. That's pretty fancy, but. If your granddaddy went into a field and, and tried to harvest a crop, he would take off his coat and roll up his sleeves, and I'm trying to do the same thing. So basically, we're just in different fields. I appreciate the invitation to be here. It has been a lot longer than I thought. I got to doing the math and thinking about the times I had been here, which, by the way, were very enjoyable several years ago. Uh, first coming to the area over at the Mount Pleasant Church, and I think some of you may have attended over there at that time, or at least came for the meeting. Um, nonetheless, and that must have been sometime in around 2012-ish, something like that. And if that be the case, I was wearing a fanny pack with an IV bag on it and would oftentimes hang my IV bag on the side of the pew to preach. And that's what I had done for almost a year at that point. Finally, heart transplant came and everybody was concerned and wondered, you know, will he ever preach again? What's going to be the change uh, coming about in his life, and long story short, I got out of the hospital, got home. Uh, two weeks later, I preached a meeting locally, and two weeks after that, I came here, and then I went on a, a meeting spree of uh, preaching eight meetings in 10 weeks. No, six meetings in 10 weeks, don't lie, but six meetings in 10 weeks, and I've been busy ever since, up until last year uh, when COVID hit, and boy, that hit. Um, I had actually had it, so I'd been sick, but that wasn't the part and still isn't the part that's been most discouraging to me about it. It's just been a hard time. It's been a hard time for people. They're losing their lives, some of them losing their livelihoods. But most important to me, I have seen a lot of people, and again, I hope I'm not making a prophetic statement that will ever come true, but so many people are not only losing their lives and their livelihood, they're losing their life. And I mean by that, their lives spiritually. And I don't know where their lives will be in eternity uh, because of COVID. And I realize the, the risk and the dangers, and so I'm not uh, saying any of that in any ill way. But I know that it's going to be very, very hard on, on a lot of people uh, who are living the best life they can. But without this camaraderie and without this you know, unity and without this fellowship, the struggle can be all that much harder. And we've got a lot of things coming at us right now from the world and on the outside that I think pile in in addition to that and make things even harder. So I'm glad that I'm having, again, the opportunity to be at places like this, to drive five, six hours and to preach for a day and whatever it is or back to doing meetings because that tells me at least the congregations are preparing themselves to, to struggle to fight back and to make that effort. So I hope to be a part of that. Everything I say today, I come to you with at least two purposes. One of them, I come to you for the purpose of evangelism. So if there's anybody here who doesn't normally or not normally here, hopefully we can show you some things from God's Word that will help you to be encouraged, to look to it, to study it for yourself, and to use it in your life. And to one day, whether it be today or yet another, 
before eternity that you would be able to go to God and, and obey Him, be baptized into Christ's blood, and then carry that life out faithfully. My other purpose is always not just to evangelize but to encourage because I know that as a congregation it doesn't take long and you're even in the position. You know, you don't have a preacher, not that the preacher's the uh, town hero or anything necessarily, but when you're missing something, and it doesn't matter what it is, it could be an eldership, it could be a preacher, it could be a faithful member who's paid. When a congregation is missing something, then there's something that's not being done. Or at least there's something that someone is having to do which takes away, I think, from maybe their talent and their skill set. And so the church works together, they work through those things, but those times can be, for lack of better terms, disappointing and discouraging. And so I thought because of that, and, and the other day I was sitting in the dentist parking lot about to go in and uh, got a text, you know, what are your sermon titles? <laughs> I don't do that. Uh, I generally plan my sermons on the front pew. I study well before that, but I don't make up my mind. But I, I told Miss Nikki, I said, well, it'll be the God of more. And I had good intention with that. And I got home and I thought, what were you telling her? God, what you going to, you know. But the God of more, because it doesn't matter what situation you're in, what difficulty you're having, what problems you're involved in, what stress, what struggle. It doesn't matter how bright your days are, how wonderful things are going. This is the back opposite of what I just mentioned, how, how the path in life to you may seem so smooth and easy. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. We always need more from God than we can expect. Of course, the first time you see that, and this is not our text, you can flip or flop, but once I get where we're going, we won't. But the first time you see something like that developing is actually back in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, where God is coming to Abraham, beginning to confirm. He's already made mention of, but beginning to confirm in Abraham's mind some of those prophetic promises, which would include all the nations of the earth being blessed through his seed and include as well that his nation or his family would one day be numbered among the stars and that it would be expanded that far. And we know ultimately trailing that down through the uh, annals of time that that gets to us, it gets to the church and what a blessing it was and it can be made possible by Jesus Christ. However, in Genesis 17 in verse 1, Abraham is being promised, him and Sarai at the time, Abram and Sarai, have been promised that they're going to have that seed, that that son is going to come and that son is somehow going to produce this, not only what would ultimately be a physical kingdom, but literally ultimately become a spiritual kingdom as we live. And Abraham is puzzled by that because of his age, because of their situation, particularly because of Sarai's age and the fact that she had been barren. And it's right there, smack the middle to smack the end of that verse where God tells Abraham, I am God Almighty. And then you'll find that phrase another 11 times, that exact phrase throughout the Testaments, and it carries itself from right there in Genesis 17 and verse 1, all the way through the letter of the Revelation. And time and time again, not only are the phrases I am used, Jesus uses that of himself so many times, but the phrase in conjunction with that, I am God Almighty. 
And what God says there is, number one, he says, I am more than you can expect. Whatever you think of me, however you feel about me, whatever you theorize I'm like, I am more than that. And whatever you think I can supply, whatever you think I can offer, and whatever you think I'm capable of or willing to give, I'll give you more than that. Of course, in the context, in the original there, uh, Abraham is just saying, look, you can't give us a child. I don't see any way this could take place. It's not going to take place physically, seemingly. It's not going to be possible in nature, seemingly, just to kind of use that loosely. But it is possible because the God Almighty made it possible. And, of course, you can research that phrase that just happens to be there in front of that in chapter 17, verse 1 of Genesis, when he said, I am God Almighty. What he's saying is, I am absolutely sufficient. That's the I am. I have been, I am, and will be. In addition to that, I have gave, I give, and will give. I'm sufficient. Everything that we can need, want, desire, hope for, dream for, reach for, try to obtain in life, if God chooses to bless us with such, we can get that. But ultimately, keeping in mind, and we'll have to mention this three or four times today, throughout the day, keeping in mind that as God does that, His primary focus is on the spiritual. So if you see someone with this health and wealth gospel that says, well, you know, these verses lead me to believe that if I do things a certain way or pray a certain way or give a certain way and, or any of these things that God's going to bless me with that, you know, three and a half million dollar house and, and maybe they by chance, end up with that. Maybe through hard work or debt, they end up with that. And they may blame God for that. And to an extent, they might say, well, God allowed me to have such. Yeah, true, maybe. But God's main focus was showing us in life whether He does it with adding to us or taking much away of showing us in life that He is all sufficient. And I've seen that happen on the both sides and more times than not on the lower side of that where everything is had, but yet everything is lost. That's the book of Job. That is the situation with so many Bible characters, so many faithful people who are listed in so many great places throughout text. That's the case. And so I want you to take your Bibles this morning. You've probably, some of you looked over to Genesis anyway, but go into the New Testament. So let's look at the book of John for just a, three or four hours today, to be honest with you. Let's look at the book of John. Go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And we're going to basically today take three out of the seven, eight if you add in the resurrection of Jesus, but seven of the miracles that Jesus performed with his own hand in front of men in order to bring glory to God. We're going to take view of about three of those out of that number of seven that I've kind of selected. And each of these accounts that we're going to study together, I think if you'll just start watching from the beginning, you're going to see God seemingly being expected to give one thing, and then He gives more. In every one of these, I'm going to put different titles, different subtitles with them as well. But in every single one of these, you're not just going to see God providing them sufficiency because He will. But He's going to provide them sufficiency to deal with, and if you do all seven, which we, we can't in three hours, but if you do all seven, sufficiency to deal with seven completely separate issues, potentially struggles, or barriers that come in our lives. 
And the first one here is found in John chapter 2. You would know this as Jesus in changing the water to wine. Any uh, young, young child that spent any time around a Bible class, probably one of the accounts, they might call it story, but better stated account that they've heard, probably one of the things that they have you know, talked about and, and told people about. And I think if you went out on the street and asked someone to name some of the miracles of Jesus, there might be some people that would name this one because according to their belief, it supports the way they live, which that's not the truth, but they might use it. So it might be familiar at least. And I enjoy familiar text. So let's just start reading here. And we're going to talk about that God is more than our disappointment. I think this past year has been in general pretty disappointing to some and, and could end up be more so than that. Not that we take our eyes off God, but just in having to live in the world that we do. But in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, you'll notice what this miracle is concerning. It says, And on the third day <clears throat> there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee... And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were called to the marriage. And when they, wanted, when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And he said to his mother, or his mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he do, or whatsoever he saith, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, and containing two or three firkins apiece. You may have a marginal note estimating, and we don't know much about it, but estimating somewhere between 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Therefore, the result somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons uh, total. Verse 7, And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and the water, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not from whence it was. But the servants which drew the water knew. And the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man... Uh, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou has kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of miracles which Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Now, just on the surface, I'm sure as I kind of warned you or asked you to look for it, there it was right there. He said, every other wedding we've ever attended, every other time we've been in this situation, if they have wine there to drink, they're going to bring out the best wine first, and then things are going to trail away. They're going to offer the best they can offer in any aspect, and then eventually things are going to trail away. But look here what Jesus has done through the miracle. He tells them up front, or teaches them, as I should say, up front, I will give you the best at the last. Folks, He is the God of more. And he accomplishes that here by taking a situation which I would consider, and we'll illustrate it as we go through, but I would consider a potential very disappointing situation. Not only for Jesus' mother who vocalizes such, but for the guest, perhaps for his disciples, and even for Jesus, I think we'll get around to saying. 
potentially disappointed. But it's in the midst of the disappointment that the God of more shows up and he offers them more. Okay, so let's start breaking the text down. I want to show you some things that I think are really here. I've learned through the years and tried to remind myself constantly that it doesn't matter what you're reading in God's Word, how familiar it might be, like this account is to many of us, how familiar it might be. If you'll keep digging, there's always more to the book. If you look to the book, there's more to the book. And if you dig into the book, oftentimes we'll cross things like this miracle where it could be a head scratch and say, well, that's good. He changed water to wine, but what does that mean to me? So let's notice a few things. Number one, and these will all sound similar. I alliterate as they call it. But number one, I want to learn from this right out of the gate, verse one and two, that Jesus enjoys our celebrations. Jesus actually enjoys our celebrations. Now, verse 1 and 2, to reread that, said, It was the third day. There was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Now, you say, well, what in the world would Jesus be doing there? Well, if you map things out and look things up, you'll see that Cana of Galilee was pretty much in the similar area, at least, at least within a town or so where Jesus was actually known to spend more time in Capernaum and such as that. And so it could be that Jesus was there just based on what I would call proximity. Maybe Jesus has arrived in this place because of proximity and he just stumbled into this area and he just made his way over to this area and he was brought in and he attended the wedding feast and there was that. Well, there may be some truth to that with the exception of the fact that this basically specifically tells us that Jesus and his disciples were called to be there. So he's not there because of proximity as much as he's there because something about Jesus and his family apparently have been called because of priority. That is, at some point, and this is what's interesting about weddings today and how they, even though they're so different, reflect on weddings of yesterday. At some point, someone sat down, like we would traditionally, and they made a list of those who would be guests. You know, I don't know if you experienced that, any of you, when you got married or maybe could remember that far back. I can remember my wife and I sitting down and uh, she wanted to know, well, who would you like to invite? Doesn't mean some others won't show up, but who would you like to invite? And I said, well, this guy, this guy, this guy, not that fella, you know, kind of thing. And then she said, had half her family that they just, they just don't live right. And she, she was like, well, I don't know if I want ain't so-and-so here, you know, how she acts and you know, there was a lot of this. But at the end of the day, we came up with a guest list, those who were to receive invitations. Very similar to today. And so someone would either be there by proximity, as in ours happened to be in the local church building, and they rode by and said, well, there's a wedding. Very rare that that would happen, but they walk in. Or they're there because of priority, and that is someone has brought them there. But either way works. Now, that's where the similarities between our weddings and our gatherings are, are far different from theirs in that day. In Jesus' day, weddings were a huge, let me say this, they were a humongous part of life and entertainment and social class. There were actually people that in Jesus' day would travel hundreds of miles to go to weddings basically of absolute and total strangers. 
They would travel as far and wide as they could and the word would go out that this whole year of betrothment was ending and that the culmination of this wedding was about to take place and they would travel far and wide as much as they would and come in because this was the social event of the time. This area, Cana of Galilee, in which Jesus was, is reported. Again, reported by who? I don't know. But has been reported to probably have a population of somewhere around 40. So it doesn't sound like a big event. But by the time you add in the outlying areas, such as Capernaum, such as, such as those things around him, the numbers exponentially go up. And then you add the potential and the tradition in Jesus' day just to attend a wedding basically for fun or for the social part of it because they rarely got any of that. Big deal. A really big deal. And it was, contrary to what we might want to believe, it was a celebration. It was a time, I would call it a hoedown of a wedding. That is the way they did things. There would have been singing and dancing. Of course, we're not talking about lovey close, but you know, celebratory dancing. There would have been a party all the while. These things oftentimes would last a minimum of seven days, sometimes go as long as ten. They again had been planned by the betrothal almost at a standard for over a year. There had been a lot of effort, a lot of funds, a lot of, you know, whatever put in there. This is a big deal. And I wouldn't mention that except for the fact that I want to bring that point out. I just said Jesus enjoys our celebration. Too many times in life, and this is just the way I've seen it and the way I've lived it, too many times in life, I go around in life, even as a Christian, and I basically walk around like the picture on my driver's license. I mean, really. And people who are on the outside, you know, we're going through life, and if we're thinking correctly, we're thinking to ourselves, well, I just want to influence my neighbor. I want to influence my coworker, my classmate. I want everybody around me, uh, whether I get to have that, that verbal talk or not, I want them to know that I live for God, and I live for Christ, and I love Jesus, and I'm a Christian, and I want them to know that. Well, you can do that sometimes through morality. But the problem is if morality does not shine above mood, you ain't making no progress. If I go around in life with that tight face and frustration and disappointment and anger and all these other things may not even cross the line of being sinful, but they're just not attractive. I mean, someone, you tell someone, a coworker, you know, I'm a member of the church and I happen to attend down at Redland. We'd love for you to come and be with us. And they're like, yeah, okay, sometime. And they think, man, that's about to be the most Eeyore down in the, you know, you've got to live a better life than that. I have to live better than that. I've got to have something that I set in front of them that is so attractive till they say, I don't even know what he or she has, but I want it. Jesus enjoys our celebration. So Jesus is not going down there just to be a stick in the mud. He's not going down there to just to be a side participant, someone who looks at the distance. He is invited to that wedding. He comes there. We know he is there. We know his mother is there. We know his disciples, his friends are there. And they are there to take care of that. 
So if we're afraid, and I know we're, we're inside of four walls today. We're prepared to worship the Lord. We're prepared to do that properly and decently and in order and all of this. But I've got to leave this building tomorrow, not only, or this building today. I scared you to death there. You bring that sandwich, won't you? We're prepared to leave this building today and to go back to regular lives for many of us tomorrow. And we've got to live that life to be an example, not only of who Jesus was, but how Jesus would desire us to live. He's given us an opportunity to be the first, I call it the first room of heaven on earth in the church. And if tomorrow my report from the service, and I'll take all the blame if it has to be this way, but if my report tomorrow, somebody says, well, did you go to church? Hopefully they would know that that would be a standard. But if they happen to ask, you say, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. come with me next Sunday. No, I don't want, yeah. Jesus enjoys our celebration. Number two, pick up the reading again in verse three. And when they had wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, We have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. So secondarily, not only does Jesus enjoy our celebrations, Jesus also embraces our frustrations. He embraces our frustrations. You can answer in your heart or with your hands, either way. But I, I'd like to see your hands. You can raise your hand this morning. Just help me feel better. Raise your hand this morning if you have never been frustrated. I mean, never. You, you're so calm, cool, and collective. And you know, you got, Christ right, you got Christ right in you. So surely you don't get stressed or worried or discouraged. And you've never been angry. We get frustrated. We get frustrated with the world, which, you know, ang uh, 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 what did I, I almost said it there. Something about that anger and sin, not e uh, good ending, indentation, not indentation. What is it, Austin? But anyway, indignation, there you go. I mean, we, to an extent, yeah, we, we ought to be angry at the world. We ought to be angry at sin. But we get angry at one another. We part ways over the silliest things. We lose relationships. We lose all types of things because we, we get frustrated. And even among that, you know, even if we don't lose necessarily anything, it's easy if you, if you work a job, if you, uh, if you raise children, if you go to school, if you wake up, you're going to get frustrated at some point. I remember years ago, I was in the cabinet business, I worked in the cabinet industry. I had an employee. Uh, his name was Bobby Dale. Bobby Dale was the worst employee I think I'd ever had. I mean, just, he could get work done, but he only did it while you were watching. If you rounded that corner, I mean, it'd be, not literally, but cigarette in mouth and, you know, chair under butt. That's the way it was. But he, he was terrible. But anytime anybody was around, he not only would work because he would say, but sometimes he would complain. And the, the, the plant manager, the guy that ran the entire the entire company, basically as far as on the floor, I was one of the supervisors under him. The plant manager came by one day and Bobby Dale lit into him and just got frustrated. And he crawled up and down him and he cussed him left and right and they tied up, I mean, just all this stuff and got mad. And finally, Timmy, the plant manager, Timmy walks off, goes up to the office and I can hear it. I mean, it's, it's 
a quarter mile away in this building. He slams a door, and I hear my name. Jim Burrow, come to know. He's my guy. Thanks, Bobby Dale. I get up there. He tells me what has happened. And I said, well, I think what we ought to do is fire him. I don't like him anyway. He don't work. Fire him. No, we're not going to do that. You're going to shut him up. If I come through there again, he better not ever speak to me again. I said, uh, I don't know if that's possible, but I think we ought to fire him. A week later, Timmy made me mad, and I got frustrated. And I hollered, and I screamed, and I may have thrown something. I didn't cuss him, but I let him have it. And finally, Timmy said, are you done? I said, I'm done. He said, do you want me to fire you? I was frustrated. No, no. We get frustrated. And in this situation here, verse 3 and 4 to reread it, when they wanted wine, so there's a whole multitude of people. Again, how large that is. Potentially could have been rather large. But when they wanted wine... It says here specifically, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. And I know I may be interjecting, and, and I've, I've examined the Greek language that backs up this English, and I really can't make this determination. That's my disclaimer. But I almost imagine that she comes up to him. There is some level of frustration and disappointment, but she comes up to him and says, they have no wine. Why? Because she's probably like Abraham was in the wilderness when the children of Israel kept hounding him and he's out here striking rocks. But she says they have no wine and I don't know what she expected, what she assumed or thought might happen, but apparently Jesus' answer is written right here on the page. He said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour's not yet come. Now a few hints in here as to how he's acting slash reacting. One, he says woman. He don't say mama. He don't say mommy. He don't say certain other things. He says woman. Now I've heard people report, commentators, you know, they know a lot. You know a lot if you write a book, but you really don't know much most times. But I've heard some read commentators that say, well, you know, this, he was, you know, putting his mother down and disrespect no 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 in that day in that day women not that god authorized but it occurred women were seen as property and so for him to call her woman was a very common type of address which was much higher than the things that they were oftentimes referred to if they were even spoken to it would equate our modern day ma'am in reality, he wasn't necessarily putting her on the pedestal of mommy, but he was pulling her up to the point of which she was living, of where she was at. What her actual duties were, if there were some there, apparently she felt dutiful, whether she was supposed to be. Maybe she had gotten to be the one who was constantly bringing the food and the wine and and, you know, sorting that out. Maybe she was in charge of, the, we would say, in charge of the reception dinner or the kitchen and such as that. I don't know what her role would have been. But she comes to him out of frustration, assumed, and she says, we have no wine. And his reply was not, let me get that. Let me take care of such. Now, we know the end of the story he would. But he's not replying back with, let me think on it. 
He says, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. But you see the thing about it, and it depends on how you understand the phrase, my hour is not yet come. But in my mind, his hour is not yet come, but it's, the time is ticking. He is leaving that relationship at this point in his life where his mother is the center of his universe and now he's going under the oversight of his father even more, which obviously was God. And so for him to say, woman, and he says this not here but on a few different occasions, for him to say unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Is him saying, woman, I'm going to shift from the authority or from the request of you, and I will do what my father says in time. So Jesus embraces our frustrations. How do you know that? Because what he does in the next few verses and what she does in verse 5 is say very simply, his mother saith to the servants, whatsoever he saith, you do it expecting him to do something. Now, if that was run out the door and go down to the local 7-Eleven and pick up another, t another few gallons of grape juice, because that's all this was. I've had people argue such. There's one thing I would do, and I usually won't debate, won't argue, won't be, but you're not going to call my God in a body a drunkard or one who attributed such. They had the ability, contrary to what scholars claim, they had the ability and the opportunity to keep this wine from either becoming alcoholic or as normal practice was anyway. Wine was made at a three to one ratio and they would take it to a 10 to one ratio with water to keep it from fermenting. Now somebody says, well, they put it in these things and put it on the water or they kept it cold. Didn't even have to do all that. They just had to mix it properly. And so we have in this case right here, that old buzzer went off. What did I really do with that? For real, for real. So it's not related to the end of class. Okay. You heard him, everybody. I don't know what he meant. Jesus enjoys our celebration. Jesus embraces, or if you will, embraces our frustrations. Number three, Jesus expects our participation. And we're talking about disappointment. We've got a situation where the entirety of the, of the wedding party, if you will, are all enjoying the party. Things are going smoothly. Things are going as planned. And suddenly they run out of wine. Which, by the way, let me interject this. In Jesus' day, keep in mind how I introduced the whole thing, not only would the guests come who were invited, but outsiders from the community would come, but then total strangers would be there as well. So imagine planning a wedding party. And I've got a niece getting married uh, next year sometime. I don't know when it is, but I mean, she, she, when she sent out invitations, she also said, call me. And when we called, she said, I need to know if you're coming or not, and I need to know. Well, it's a year away, and it's in seven hours from the house. I, I don't know. Well, then you ain't coming. 
because she's planning it to the penny, to the dollar, to the plate. Can't help that. Thanks. I don't enjoy wedding that much anyway. I'm okay with it. But in their day, it was a big deal. As a matter of fact, in their day, if you ran out of grape juice, food, beverages, popcorn and sweet tea, at a celebration, you could be sued in a court of law. Big deal. So we have no wine. Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour's not yet come. Whatever he tells you to do, go do it. And keep the reading up right here. Verse 5. The mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he do, tell you to do, do it. And there were sent there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And, when he, and he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear it unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast tasted it, the water was made wine, he knew not from whence it was. And we'll stop right there just for uh, putting down some points. Right here, what Jesus is going to do, as I just stated, Jesus is going to expect our participation. Jesus could have easily, and I know we always go with this illustration first, snapped his fingers and made wine. He could have easily, as almost sounds like he might do, when telling his mother, ah, what I have to do you, my hour's not going to come. Basically saying, if you, you better go get some wine. <laughs> you better go see if it's some more. I hope somebody brought the checkbook. He didn't say that. He did not do this miracle just within himself without anybody participating. I don't mean helping, but I mean participating. What Jesus does right here is he invites others to be involved. He did this with assistance for what? For impact. I don't know how many times you've been through this, and I know I've been through this many a times, especially in the church, and appreciate those times, especially as they pass, but where maybe there's a work going on or been announced in the church. I'm like, man, I just don't know. That just don't sound like a good idea. I mean, it's, I don't know how that's going to work. I wish them the best of luck with that effort, but yes, I probably would have done it this way. And then sort of kind of accidentally, I get involved for just a minute. Just a second. You know, just, well, he's going to go door knocking, but I ain't got time to go door knocking. But I guess before I get in my truck, I'll knock that door across the road. I don't know if there's one over there or not. It'll like woods to me, but I'll, you know, and I'm like, this wasn't a bad idea. Once we become involved in something, we eventually get invested in something. And once we invest in something, guess what? We want to continue to invest more times than not. So a lot of times if you've got someone in the church, and this is in the workplace, it applies everywhere, but the church is where we are or the place where we're taking part in today. If you've got someone in the church that's always whining and complaining and that's not a good idea and I'd do it better, it's probably because they ain't done nothing. They ain't done a thing. Uh, to them, it doesn't look like much because they're not invested, they're not involved. But if they get invested and get involved and get their hands dirty, all of a sudden, it's their baby, it's their work. I don't know a whole lot about the Latin American mission 
other than Austin, and I know it's you know it's over at Forest Park, necessarily not here, although a lot of the area supports such. But I met a few guys just yesterday that when I first met them face to face, I would have been like, okay, here's a guy. And when they got to talking just about the mission work and the potential for it, they lit up. And I, I told Austin, in particular about one of them, I said, that would be the world's greatest member anywhere. But I know how he got there. He's invested in this. And so Jesus, he doesn't need them to participate, but he expects their participation just like he did in one of them. We'll see later when he's uh, feeding the 5,000. And who distributes the baskets? The disciples. He could have done that differently. He could have dropped a McDonald's bag from heaven in front of all their labs. He didn't do that. He didn't spend time. I mean, he got these men involved. He got them to invest. And that's what he's trying to do here. So the lesson I'm, I'm drawing from that is that we need to realize, and I need to realize, that some of the times when I'm disappointed and I'm frustrated and I'm down, I just need to get to work. Just find something to do and make it to work. Make sure it's the work of the Lord. I'm just not believing you on this clock thing. I'm nervous. Somebody here. Number next. Jesus enjoys our celebrations. Jesus embraces our frustrations. Jesus invites our participation or expects it. Number next. Jesus, and this is where we need to get to if we have to stop in just a second. He expands our expectations. He's a God of more. And so what may have been expected could have been any number of things from nothing I can do about it to you better go get some to tell them to get those water pots and pour that over into the juice and we'll do the best we can do. Which was a typical average practice. But Jesus did the whole thing back opposite. He didn't take the vats of wine to which you can assume they've been dipping out of for days and in some way just topped that off. He took the water pots, which the scriptures, I mean, you read it on your page, were set there after the purifying of the Jew. This was not get a drink and a bottle on your way in. This was wash your feet, your hands, and purify your head before you get in here. And this nasty water is sitting somewhere around the doorway. It's a huge trove of these things, these six water pots, 120 plus gallons of water sitting there. And Jesus says, just top those off. With what? Not with the wine, it's gone. Assumed to be more water. But what Jesus does with that is so great. And he said, verse 7 to reread, He saith unto them, Fill up the water pots of water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith to them, Draw out and bear it to the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water, he said exactly where it started, tasted the water, tasted the water that was made wine. He knew not whence it was. He don't know where they got it. But the servants who drew it knew, see their participation in such. 
And the governor feast called the bridegroom. So the man that's getting married, the man that's responsible, the man that's been planning all of this for all this time, the one who is really, he's either going to fail or he's going to stand tall in this. And he saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth the good wine. But when the men have well drunk, that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Jesus right here, as I just stated, He exceeded and expanded all of their expectations. And He always will. I don't care who it is, how it is, what they've been in, how down they may be, how disappointed. It is possible within the power and the hand of God through their acceptance and obedience and His choice and His invitation to bring those two together. I mean by that the holy God and the infinite uh, Lord wouldn't even normally have fellowship man together and to completely exceed those expectations. Somewhat out of context as we close, but consider it. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or, my favorite word, think. How, how is that? According to the power worketh in him. What do you expect out of God? Not enough. What does he give? More than we can have. He gives us more of everything as he works through us in our spiritual lives. I appreciate your attention and your time.